thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. All right. Hey, that brings us to our, uh, our message. And uh, we are, like I said, sitting in the last week of Jesus. Um, we have, uh, today we're going to be looking at Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, I just got to tell you before we get started, there's not much about Wednesday. We don't know that much about Wednesdays. As the scholars have dug in, as we've looked at Scripture, everything else, we don't know much about Wednesday and then Thursday. So you kind of got Wednesday sandwiched in there. Tuesday was enormous. Then you got Thursday, which is crazy and just amazing, which we're going to talk about today. And you got Friday, which brings the death of Jesus. And, uh, and so that's what this week's all about. That's what we're looking at. And so today, particularly, we're looking at Wednesday and Thursday. And then this Wednesday, when we meet at 630, uh, we will be looking again at, uh, at the rest of Thursday. Doug will be talking about the great priestly prayer and, uh, and as Jesus prepares his way to the cross. And then we get to Friday. And I just want to invite everybody. I want to make sure you know and you've remembered Friday. We call it Good Friday, which I don't know. I don't even know what the Lord thinks about that, us calling it Good Friday. I don't know. It is so good that he gave his life for us. It is so good that he paid the price for our sins. But it cost him so much. It cost him everything. And so we're going to gather on, on Good Friday. We're going to be in the, in the, in the sanctuary, and it's, we're going to meet there at 7 o'clock. And uh, it's going to be a really special time. And we are going to allow Scripture to do the bulk of the work. We're going to have some songs that we sing. But it is really going to be a time where we reflect on exactly what Scripture says. We reflect on exactly what happened to Jesus. We reflect on the exact meaning of what was taking place and what was being done on our behalf. And as we walk out of there after taking uh, communion together, we will be prepared to come back together and celebrate life. For on Friday, our sins were paid. And on Sunday, we raised to life. It's a new life. Death has lost its sting. And that is going to be a great day that we celebrate on Sunday. And so, uh, 7 o'clock, I hope you'll be here. Hope you'll be here for just an amazing night as we make our way to Sunday. So where have we been? Sunday was the triumphal entry where Jesus declared, I am king. He took his rightful position, took his rightful place as the king of all kings. Monday, he curses the curses the fig tree, and clears out the temple, right? So as he curses the fig tree, we see him as judge. He will judge the living and the dead. That is his rightful place. He will be the judge of all. And then we see him later on that day clearing the temple as he demonstrates his high priestly power and authority. And then what we find is that the rest of the, then on Tuesday, his authority is being called into question. And so he teaches throughout the day in the temple about his authority. He teaches about what is going to transpire and going to happen. He teaches about the kingdom of God that he is about to usher in. He teaches about, uh, uh, about the urgency that there is to accept his invitation. The urgency to accept the invitation to know him as God and king and high priest. The invitation that people would receive forgiveness for the sins. Their invitation that they could live freely with him. And don't let the moment pass, he teaches. And then he continues to teach and he shares that 
uh, he will return after his death. He will return not only once in terms of the resurrection, but he will return again. And when he does, it's going to be in the blink of an eye. It's going to be at the flash. It's going to be at a time where we don't know, but we are to be ready. We live this new life and we are to be ready. And he shares different stories and different parables about being ready for his return and being ready and being aware and being alert because it is imminent. But also, not to be scared, but it'll be a terrible time when he returns. It'll be a time of great destruction. It'll be a time of of great pain. It'll be a time because he's returning as the judge which he has demonstrated and the king which he is. And be prepared. And we find ourselves into Wednesday. And what we find in Matthew and Mark uh, particularly is this. Is they start Wednesday in what we might call, it's not a very technical term by the way, it's a term that theologians and interpreters use, extremely technical. We find it's the sandwich technique. That's a joke. It's not terribly technical at all. But we do find the, the sandwich technique. And really what's happening here is as he as he enters into getting closer and closer to the day of the Passover celebration, the day of the feast, and then ultimately his death, is that they tell a story that actually happened several days earlier. And we know that because John says it happened uh, before the triumphal entry. And so we we see this story that's kind of positioned uniquely. It kind of gets pulled back in, and it's the anointing of Jesus. And what it does is it uh, it really emphasizes worship. It emphasizes sacrifice. It emphasizes devotion. It emphasizes love to the Savior. And then we have this very uh, kind of rancid meat in the middle, of the, the middle of the two loaves of bread, if you will. And then we got the second piece of bread, which is Jesus in the Last Supper, demonstrating his great love and his great sacrifice and his willingness because of his love to sacrifice his whole life, to sacrifice everything that we might live. And so what is it that's in the middle? It's the story of Judas' betrayal. It's the story of him going to the high priest and saying, yep, count me in. I'll betray Jesus. Had met with him, had traveled with him, and lived with him, had heard the message, had been his disciple for the last three years. Had his band of brothers with him. They were closer than you could ever be. He heard all the teachings of Jesus. And so what happens is that right after this great anointing and act of worship, we see him go. The story continues that he went to the high priest and said, I'll take 30 pieces of silver and I'll betray my Jesus. Because we find that what he discovered is that there wasn't much for him. You see, we find throughout a couple different passages, especially in the book of John, that he was a pretty selfish guy. He was in it for the money, which is why we're going to see one of his responses. He was in it for himself. And when he found that there wasn't much to receive, he turned on Jesus. And then we go into the story of Jesus, who receives nothing from us. Think about that now. Think about the way that Mark and Matthew are, are sandwiching the story who receives nothing from us except for our disobedience, except for our lack of love, except for us turning our back on him, except for us saying, hey, my way is the better way. Hey, listen, I know you said this or that, but you must have really meant this or this because this is the way I'd rather live. That's what he receives from us. 
And what did he do? Instead of turning his back on us and run and tail, what did he do? He died for us. What did he do? He gave his life for us. What did he do? He gave everything for us. What a contrast. And it's magnifying this thing that took place with Judas and saying, once again, beware. Where is it that we sit? Are we in this thing with Jesus to see what we can get? Are we in this thing with Jesus to see what we can get out of it? And when we don't get what we want, we turn our back on him and betray him and sell him out for whatever we think is valuable at that moment. May we not be worshipers like that. And that's really the magnitude of the story. So you got this sandwich motif that's taking place as we head in to the very first passage. And it's the anointing. And it's a picture of extravagant worship. It's a picture of extravagant worship. Let's read it together. And that is found in, uh, we're going to read this out of Mark 14, verses 3 through 11. So if you have your own Bibles and you're turning there, then I'll just wait a quick second. But Mark 14, verses 3 through 11. Okay. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those presents were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did, she did what she could. Say that again. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be done, will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to him. Okay. So not sure what happened to the light there, but let's get that back up a little bit. So. Here's what's happening. Let me bring us back through this. We're just going to go through it step by step. I think it's that important. You'll notice I'm not getting overly excited. you notice I'm not jumping around a little bit today. And we're going to walk through some really important things. I think things that absolutely matter and are critical to our faith that Jesus is calling out. That the Lord made sure that this story was there to be remembered throughout all times. So we're going to remember it. And we're going to sit in it carefully and walk through it very carefully. So here's what we have. The Lord is spending his nights outside of the city in Bethany, Right? Uh, east of Jerusalem, on the south slopes of the Mount of Olives. Matthew recorded this event taking place in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know that much about him. We're thinking he was the man that Jesus healed of leprosy, but because here's one thing we do know, that he doesn't currently have leprosy. He might be called Simon the leper, but he doesn't currently have it. Why? Nobody would be with him. He's not holding a a banquet. He's not having people over for dinner 
if he has leprosy. In fact, he is cast out of the city, called unclean, and nobody's able to be around him, especially the day before the Passover or the day of the Passover, depending on when exactly this is taking place. Whew, not happening, right? Not happening. So we know that he has been healed of his leprosy. Now we have a woman entering the story. And uh, all she's described in Matthew and Mark is a woman. But John tells us that she is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember who Lazarus was? Jesus raised him from the dead. Raised him from the dead. Remember Mary and Martha? They were the ones that were both serving Jesus. One was uh, running around doing things. I'm a little bit that guy. I run around and do things. But Mary was told that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him. Do you remember which one that Jesus said, uh, if you had to call one better, which one you would call better? Oh, doesn't sit well with our American mind, does it? It was Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't need our work. He loves our worship. doesn't need our work. He loves our worship. So as we pick this up, I want to take special notice of this woman and her worship because we're told that she'll be remembered. It's an extravagant worship. It's a worship that we're not used to. It's a worship that's uncommon. It's a worship that actually we're going to talk about in a second makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Have we ever gotten upset with anyone at church because they were, were running around? Or you know how many times I've served in children's ministry? My goodness. And all that person does is pray and worship. That's all they do. I serve week in, week out. You know how many times I've opened doors? You know how many times I've directed traffic? You know how many times I've poured communion cups? You know how many times I've worked in the kitchen? You know how many potatoes I've cut up for this church? And what do you do? You're part of the prayer team? <laughs> the prayer team? Come on. Yeah. Yeah, it's an extravagant worship, isn't it? And extravagance often makes us feel uncomfortable. Extravagance often makes us feel uncomfortable. So let's look into this. Extravagant worship is costly. It's costly. She anoints Jesus with a very expensive perfume. If you look into it a little bit, this perfume came from the Himalayan mountains, and uh, it was kept in a jar, and you could, uh, I mean, Himalayan mountains, can you imagine what it took to get it? Don't think 2019, right? Don't think that. Think back at Jesus' time with a camel and walking. The Himalayan mountains, that's where it came from incredibly costly to get it, to harvest it, to bring it, to distribute it, to buy it, incredibly costly. It had been reserved for the most special of occasions. It had been kept in a jar that was maybe a kind of wider on the bottom or round like a bulb on the bottom, and then a, a long stem so that the aroma could escape, but it wouldn't dry out, and it would have a lid, and the aroma would fill the house when it was opened up, but it would disappear kind of quick. So, it was expensive. Matter of fact, they said it could be as much as 300 denarii a year's wages. That's pretty expensive. Pretty expensive. So, there's no ordinary blessing. It was an extravagant act of worship. It's highly possible that this, this act of worship cost her everything she had. Her security, her future, her fortune. It cost her everything. This one act of worship cost her everything. It's highly possible. We're not told more than that, but it's highly possible. It says she broke the bottle, which meant she held nothing back. 
oh, it's extravagant and it's costly. She held nothing back. Her only thought was to worship Jesus, and she gave everything she had to worship him. Extravagant, extravagant worship, it's risky. It's a risky worship, and we're kind of adverse to taking risk, right? It's, it's funny. We have a, a, a going through this whole Constitution and bylaw things. I had to sit down with lawyers, a lot of them, like many times. Our board heard from lawyers. We heard. We had writings. We had, oh, my goodness, wow. Love lawyers. For the lawyers in our church, and there's some in this room right now, love you. I do. I do. I promise. Right? But they're always talking about risk. Right? We have a, we have a, our insurance company comes through here once a year and says, oh, that's a risk. That's a risk. Somebody's going to fall down that hole. That's a risk. I'm like, hole? It's a sewer. Like, that's where water goes. Cover it up. Then where does the water go? I mean, I just have all sorts of questions. Or, hey, that, you know, be careful. Oh, okay, okay, we'll be careful. Hey, we're so adverse to risk. Extravagant worship is risky. We won't say certain things for risk of how we might be viewed. We won't do certain things for risk of what that will do to us, we won't, or what we might lose. Is, extravagant worship is risky. Huh. Then those who were at the dinner party became indignant and rebuked her. Here she was worshiping Jesus, and these people that are gathered there rebuked her. John tells us that the disciples, that it was the disciples in particular. So John's story is a little bit different, gives a little more detail about this. And he says in particular of the disciples, it was Judas Iscariot that was leading the, the, the rebuking. It was him leading the, the commentary. It was him leading, saying that, can you believe she's doing this? Can you believe she's given all this? Can you believe she's giving all this up? You could be taking care of the poor for a year. He had no desire to take care of the poor for a year. He was just indignant. He was a selfish person. They were not only deeming and hurting her, judging her, holding captive her worship and judging it on a human level instead of at an eternal godly level. They were not only doing that. Here's what else they were doing. They were defaming and demeaning Jesus. And when we look at somebody's worship and we demean it or say that we should categorize it or we judge it or we say it shouldn't be so extravagant, we are demeaning and defaming the name of the Lord. We are demeaning and defaming Jesus, which is exactly what these people were doing, those that were gathered, the disciples themselves. They were disrespecting Jesus. To anoint somebody on their head with oil like that, right? Not in prayer or other things, but in the manner in which she was, was to anoint royalty, was to anoint a king. To break that alabaster jar, to give everything she had, and to lavish the Lord on top of his head was to proclaim him king. And to rebuke her was to say, not really, He's not deservant of that type of worship or that type of gift. Oh, may we never be caught doing that. May that never be us. Extravagant worship is beautiful. Then Jesus speaks up and says, leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. He said here that extravagant worships, extravagant worship that is costly and risky is beautiful beloved church 
sons and daughters of the king, when Jesus says something is beautiful, lean in. Lean in as quick as you can and listen. Understand what it is that's beautiful. Understand that something here is what we want said of us. Something here that's taking place is what we want said of us. There's only two choices. Either something is beautiful or it's not. Either something is is beautiful and attractive or it's putrid and you want to turn away from it. And he's saying, this is beautiful. Her sacrifice, our sacrifice. Her devotion, may it be our devotion. Her outrageous love for Jesus, may it be our outrageous love for Jesus. For then it will be a beautiful thing. He goes on to say, the poor you will always have with you. You can always help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me, right? Some have tried to say, this was Jesus saying, hey, just give to, the, give to me, right? Give to the church. Give to the religious institution. So not true. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Could not be more statements of heresy than you could ever imagine. Jesus was actually quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. He was saying you're always going to have them. They're always going to be here. And you should absolutely give to them. And you will give to him. In fact, your worship of me might even be best demonstrated as you give to the poor and the needy. But right now you have me. And I'm here. And I'm with you. And I am the center of your focus and attention. This is a beautiful thing she's done because she has done it out of love. She's done it out of devotion. She has risked your response. And it has cost her everything. Leave her alone. She did what she could, says verse 8. She poured perfume over my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. We just need to take a pause here as we talk about this extravagant worship and be reminded, just as Jesus is reminding us in this passage, his death was no accident. It didn't come by anyone else's idea. It was his idea. It wasn't just the only result that could possibly happen. It wasn't a, a misstep or a misplaced plan. Everything about this week, everything about his life, everything since the garden and the, and the sin that started was leading to this moment. And he was letting her know and all the people there that this moment, listen, I am singularly focused. All that is going on, I have one mission. I am on the march to the cross and it is for your lives. It is to sacrifice for each and every one of you. It will be my extraordinary extravagant act of love that you might be saved. Did she know she was anointing him for burial? We don't know. Did she know that that's what was taking place? We don't know. But what we knew, what know is that Jesus was declaring that he was going. He would not be stopped. He would pay the price for our sins. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was his joy 
to die on our behalf. It was his joy to make the journey to the cross. How can you say that? Because it was driven by his love. And when you're driven by love, aren't you, don't you have tunnel vision? When you're driven by love, you know where you have to go. When you're driven by love, there's nothing that will stop you and there was nothing that would stop our Savior from getting to the cross. He even took this woman's act of worship and said, let me tell you what this is actually doing. It's preparing for my death and burial. Set your focus there and get it off yourself. Get it off what you have or don't have. Get it off money. Get it off the things of the world and put it upon me because I am about to give my life for you that you can live instead of die. Let's get back to our woman here, Mary. Extravagant worship is our everything. Look back at verse 8 for a second. You see what it says there? It says, she gave what she could. She gave what she could. She took what she had and said, Jesus, it's yours. It's the best thing to do with what we have. Is it your time? Is it your family? Is it your opportunities? Is it your dreams? Is it your retirement? Is it your relationships? Is it your home? Extravagant worship, the worship that Jesus calls beautiful, is our everything. Whatever it is that we can give to him, we give to him. And we say, you do with it what you choose. Didn't he do that with her worship? He said, look, this is anointing me for burial. He takes our worship and he does that which is best with it. Should we not give him everything that we can? Surrender it all at his feet and see what he will do with it. When we combine the gospel records, we learn that she didn't just anoint his head, but also his feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. The hair in scripture is said to be the glory of a woman. She not only gave him everything that she had physically, but she gave him her dignity. She gave him her everything. She gave him her image. She gave him her outward appearance. She gave him her everything, all that she could. And it was an extravagant act, make no mistake, to, to take your hair and to wipe the feet of Jesus was an extravagant act of humility to honor her beloved Savior. Kind of causes us to stop for a moment, doesn't it? I had to stop. I, just, I had to stop. Because when was the last time? that I was accused of extravagant worship? When was the last time that I was accused of worship that was costly? When was the last time that somebody became indignant with me because my worship was risky? When was the last time that somebody could look at me and say, your worship cost you everything and it was all you could give? We're really okay in our Western culture, in our society, with the moderate. Everything in moderation. Everything in balance. A little bit of everything is good. Some things, a little bit of extra is even better, but for the most part, moderation. And in the church, we're not much different. 
the world and culture around us says moderation, except for, you know, much money you want, that's a good thing. You don't have to be too moderate about that. Much sex, and that's good. Get as much of that. As much as you can get for yourself, get that. Share a little bit, but get that. But religion, fanatics, radicals, no. Come on, keep it moderate, everybody. Keep your feet on the ground. Let's not get too crazy about this stuff. We do that in the church. Let's not get too extreme with our worship, <laughs> which is amazing to me because so many of the words that describe worship in Scripture are action words, words of lifting our hands, words, words of kneeling to the ground, words of, of prostrate before us, words of, of head on the, on the ground, words of sacrifice, words of abandonment, words that are costly. The words that describe through Scripture in the original languages, the words that describe our worship are action words, are words of humility, words of abandonment. And yet, even in the church, we say, hey, 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 not too much. Don't get too crazy. Dancing, what's that all about? Waving your hands, you're a little distracting. You have to sing so loud. We do things like that. May it not be us. Just may it not be us. May this, may this challenge, as it's been sandwiched between uh, the selfish one, and he says, this is a beautiful thing, and her story is to be told throughout time. May it challenge us to worship with all that we are. May it challenge us to give and abandon ourselves to all, to all that Jesus is, to give everything we have on his behalf, to say, I love you, Lord, with all that I am. And here is my life. Use it however you would want to. May it challenge us to be an extravagant worshiper. Do you know Mary is only mentioned three times in the Gospels? And each time, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to him speak. She sat at his feet in sorrow for her brother. And she sat at his feet in worship and anointed him with all that she has. By the way, who else did Jesus say would be remembered? Nobody? Mary, the extravagant worshiper. Because extravagant worship is memorable. Extravagant worship is memorable. Truly, I tell you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You know, that's one of the most amazing things about our Easter services. A lot of times we get to this time of year and people go, what's the big deal about Easter? It's everything. What's the big deal? It's everything. If there's no resurrection, then there's nothing. If there was no death, then we're still bound to sin. If there was no resurrection, we're still in the grave. There's no hope for eternity. It's everything. It is the pivotal moment, not only in our faith, but in all the universe. It's everything. And so what do we do? One of the worst things we can do is we can invite people in and go, hey, let us, uh, let us put on a show for you. Let us, uh, let us, you know. Hey, Jesus. No. What should we do? gather and lift our hands high and worship the Jesus that saved them, that gave them life on our behalf. Because why? Worship is memorable. Worship that costs us something is memorable. 
Worship that is risky is memorable. Worship that brings all that we have is memorable. And then what will happen? People will look and go, I want to know that Jesus. I want to know that Jesus that makes you act the way you act. I want to know that Jesus that makes you smile the way you smile. I want to know that Jesus that gives you the hope that gives you the hope that you have. I want to know that Jesus that brought peace into your life and I've never had peace like that. I want to know that Jesus. I want to know who that is. I want to know that takes the dead and makes them rise to life. That's our message, right? Rise, which is what? Once we were dead and now we're alive. I want to be alive. I thought I was alive, but I'm not alive like you. Uh Uh-uh. We just worship. From the depth of our soul, from the depth of our love for God, we just worship. And it is memorable. I get excited about Easter. I get excited about Easter. It's that moment in our faith. Remember last week we found out the church is supposed to be a church prayer. Temple, the church, us, supposed to be a place of prayer. I want to pray for Easter. I want to pray for Easter. Would you join me? Father, we do. We pray for next week. We pray for the many, many names around the wall and the hallway. We pray for the many names around our hearts that we're going to invite here. We pray for all those that will show up. We pray that their lives will be absolutely changed and turned around. We pray that they would know you. We pray that they would, Lord, be, uh, be changed by you. Father, we pray that their lives would be absolutely turned upside down and inside out. We pray, Lord, that they would know your peace and your hope that has changed us like crazy. Pray that we would welcome them with open arms, anybody who shows up to this place. Father, those that are thinking about it, those that are wondering, those that are saying, hey, we should probably get out there and go to church. Lord, drag them here, move them here, whatever it would take, but not just here, all the churches in Loudoun County. May you overflow every single church in Loudoun County, Lord. Oh, Lord, may you... May you make all the fire marshals and fire chiefs scratch their head and go, what's up with all these people? What are we going to do? Because there's so many, and they're pouring out the doors to hear your great word of truth and love. And may your people demonstrate your love in such a powerful way as they worship you. As they give back to you all that you've given them, as they, as they adore you with all their words and their thoughts, as they adore you with their actions and their choices, as they adore you and worship you, Father. May your churches overflow with worshipers of you and may it be a memorable thing for those who sit and watch. And Father, may we humble ourselves before you and may you do a great thing in this place. Father, I sat with a pastor teacher uh, of your word this week and they said they believe that there's a revival coming. Oh Lord, let it come quick. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Which brings us to Thursday, the day of the Passover. And we continue, but this time we're going to be in Matthew 26. We're going to be in Matthew 26. Okay? And on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, starting in verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples in your house. So the disciples did as Jesus instructed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus reclining at the table with the twelve and they uh, they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him and to one another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, 
The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him to not have been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all you, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink new, and I'm in your Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they left the city again. Let's walk through this. This is a cost that unified us to Christ and unified us to the Father and unified us to one another. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go to a certain city. There was a man waiting. There's a house we're going to go to, right? So he said, let me give you some background here. The Passover was remembrance of the Lord's redemption of his people and then bringing them out of their slavery for Egypt. We find that in Exodus 12. On the very night of the Exodus, God sent the tenth and final plague to uh, the death of the firstborn sons upon Pharaoh and the whole population of Egypt. But God warned the Israelites to prepare by sacrificing a lamb and putting blood on the doorpost. And the angel of God and the angel of the Lord would come that night, but he would pass over their doorpost, their homes, and spare the firstborn sons of all the Hebrews. You see, in this way, the blood of the sacrificed lamb protected them from death. And every Israelite family woke up the next morning, and death had passed over their home. Thus, the celebration of the Passover. Imagine the disciples... Imagine them hurrying around because it was that night and it would take all day to prepare the feast of the Passover to celebrate because there was, uh, there's incremental parts. There was different details of it. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, a part, a meal that every piece of the meal, every part of it, every, every, uh, um, every glass, every uh, plate, every choice of meat or herbs, everything had a purpose in it. And it was all to remind them of their captivity, their enslavery, their redemption, their freedom, and that they were God's people. It was all meant to do that. But imagine the disciples hurrying around the crowds in Jerusalem where over two million people had gathered, right? They had to go buy the bitter herbs that were needed to reflect about the affliction of the Hebrews in Egypt. They had to go buy the fruit, the apples, the dates, the pomegranates, the nuts, which were all ground together to make a paste that resembled the clay. Hmm the clay that the Israelites had used to make bricks for Pharaoh. They needed to clear the whole house of any possible yeast that there might be, which represented sin. They had to go into this house that was being offered to them, and they had to rid it of, of yeast and sin. And then they would bake bread made without yeast and unleavened flat bread. They needed to have water with salt in it, representing the tears that were shed. They needed to have enough wine for four cups to be shared during the feast, each cup representing a different part of the remembrances. 
There needed to be enough wine. I mean, uh, then, then there needed to be the lamb that was uh, sacrificed at the temple. It was slaughtered and, and roasted for the evening meal. They had to have that taken to the temple and done and brought back to eat. And then after all the preparation of the food, the large upstairs room itself had to be prepared. All the food would be laid out in the center of the room on a, on a low table or possibly a mat on the floor. And then there would be cushions set around it in a U-shape. You know, uh, the pitcher, the Last Supper, not the way it was. They would have been in a U-shape and Jesus would have been up at the, the, the top of it. And they would all been gathered around. And the, the highest position, the most coveted position would be right there on the left and right of him. People would recline on the floor, propping themselves up on one elbow on the cushion and eating from the food on the table in the middle. And as they reclined together, their ears would have been close to one another's breast and they would have been able to talk with one another. This was the feast of the Passover that they celebrated year after year to remember the Exodus, remember the Passover lamb, celebrating it and having, celebrating the past and having hope for the future. They naturally celebrated with great joy because it was a time of thanking God for his deliverance, but they also celebrated it with longing. You see, it felt as if they were in exile again, as they were under the Roman control. They felt that they were still experiencing God's judgment upon them for their sin, and so every time they celebrated the Passover, they longed for God once again to rescue them. Keep that in mind now. They longed for God to once again rescue them. They longed for a new exodus. Now let's get into the meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he had given thanks. He broke it and, and gave it to the disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and he had given thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We need to understand that this was a traditional meal. Every part, like I said earlier, had a, an important piece of it. A lot of words of liturgy that were said. At one particular point, the host would would break the unleavened bread and immediately pronounce a blessing or a thanksgiving, right? It says this, Blessed art thou, O God, our, O Lord our God, King of the universe, and bringest forth bread from the earth. Would have been said every time they cracked that bread. Every time. After that, the host would normally have gone on to say, This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate. In other words, this bread represents our suffering and slavery in Egypt all those centuries ago. But Jesus breaks the bread. He gives thanks. We would have said the same thing, right? He would have said, Blessed art thou, O God, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. He would have said that. And then he says something very different and shocking. He says, Take and eat. This is my body. And Luke and Paul add, which is given for you. Just as the Israelites benefited from the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and remembered that every time they ate the Passover together, Jesus is saying, this bread is me. I'm the new Passover. I'm the new Exodus. I'm the deliverance you are longing for. But it's going to happen because my body will be given in death as a sacrifice to you for your redemption. I give you my And then most likely as the meal was coming to an end, he took the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There were and still are four cups that were part of the Passover tradition. Each cup representing God's deliverance 
that we find in Exodus 6, his promise of deliverance. He says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of Egyptians, right? Then he says, I will free you for bringing slaves to them. Third cup, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. Fourth cup, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. The third cup was probably the one that Jesus stopped at. The cup of redemption. Along with this cup, they would normally recite a traditional grace and say this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us fruit of the vine. He would then pass the cup around for the disciples to drink. But this time, Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, it would not have been lost on the disciples at all what was being said. This is the redemptive blood. This is the forgiveness of the sins. He's saying that this is the blood that's going to cover our sins, that's going to be the Passover, it's going to be the Exodus. This is what we've been waiting for, and our sins are going to be forgiven. We're going to be reestablished and reunited, reunified with God and with one another. In saying that, and we won't have enough time this morning to go into all of it, but in saying that, he's drawing from a, the covenant, the great covenant between Moses and God and the people that happened at Mount Sinai when God said, you're going to be my people. And there was a, a sacrifice and that blood was poured over the altar. Then the covenant was read. And all the people said, we obey. We will obey you and follow you. And then Moses took the blood and he, and he showered it on the people. He poured it on the people. And it was the, it was the blood covenant that said, this will never be broken. This will never be broken. The Lord will never break this covenant with you. And he never did. But the covenant was broken by the people when they did not obey and follow him, which is how we wound up in this spot. They wound up trapped in their sin, alienated from God all over again. They were not obedient people, worshiping people, following people. They were people that adored themselves more than they adored God. They had turned their back, although God never turned his back on them. And we find from Isaiah that he said that the Messiah would save many. And so Jesus included the words, this is my blood given for the many, which means no longer just the people of Israel, but now all people. And then Jeremiah said that the Messiah would forgive our sins permanently to be remembered no more. Malachi, why don't you and the band come back up here? That night was an astonishing night. It was a shocking night. It was a night that everything was about to change. They were invited to the table. They thought to celebrate what has happened and to long for what could come. And instead, they were met with Jesus, who said, I'm giving everything on your behalf. I'm going to give my body on behalf of yours. I'm going to give my blood on behalf of yours. You don't deserve it but I'm going to lavish it upon you. You won't be able to give me anything in return. In return. Not anything that I need, that's for certain. But I will lavish my love and forgiveness upon you. And through this act that's going to happen on Friday, through this act that he is going to allow himself to be crucified on our behalf, he's going to give his body and his blood to unite us in a covenant that can't be broken. 
that is, uh, because he is the eternal holy God, he is not a one-time sacrifice as the meat they were eating. He was the all-time sacrifice, past, present, and future, the all-time sacrifice. His blood would cover all the sins, past, present, and future. (laughs) And by his blood, that covenant will never be broken. And by the fact that he said that I forgive all your sins, not even our sins could break that covenant on our behalf. All that's left for us is to follow him in obedience. And when we drift apart, to come back. And to lavish him with an extravagant worship that says, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And I love you. And you have my whole life. And when I take it back, I come back and I give it back. When I take it back, I come back and I give it back. And when we come to moments like this where he said, remember that I'm doing this. Remember, it's the calling back to the great sacrifice. It's the calling back to the extravagant worship. It's a calling back to the surrendering of our lives because he surrendered his for us all out of his love for us. And so today, would you pray? Today, would you take the next five minutes or so? And just be with the Lord. Today, we're going to end our service very differently. The band's going to play a song. It's called Come to the Table, right? Talked about that. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to let you be. To come to the table on your own. To enjoy the fruit of the great sacrifice. To worship in your own extravagant way. To spend your time with the Savior without my words. For you to enjoy the supper. That the Lord said, remember my sacrifice for you. Whenever you're ready, whenever you have contemplated, whenever you have given your lives and remembered him. Then you come and you grab the juice and you grab the the bread and you take it. Remembering that he gave his body on your behalf as the Passover. Freeing you from the penalty of sin and death to live for him. You drink the blood remembering that that covenant is for all time. And when you're ready, go and worship. And we'll see you on Wednesday, Friday. And we will certainly see you on Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. And you enjoy your time with your Savior. May you remember the woman who extravagantly worshiped Jesus. May you remember the sacrifice, the extravagant sacrifice of our Savior. And may you commit your ways and your worship to the Lord. Father, we love you.